This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. We are so glad you decided to join us today. My name is Todd Pruitt, and as usual, I am joined by my two assistants that love to help out whenever they get a chance, Amy Bird and Carl Truman. They are with us, and it's so cute when they try to contribute. And so, um, It's an honor to serve, brother. It's well, an honor to yeah. serve you. All the accountability goes on you for this conversation. Yeah, it's cute. It's cute. Um, assistants. Well, we thought we'd reach out and just kind of grab one of the third rails and see what happens. We want to have a little bit of a discussion about the recently released Nashville Statement. As we are recording this particular episode, it was just released a few days ago, and we want to talk about the statement and the appropriateness of signing various statements, uh, the effectiveness of this statement, etc. I think... One of the things we would want to say is that there's a whole variety of reasons why someone might not sign that statement. There have been some various counter statements released by pro-homosexual groups, et cetera, et cetera. But there are people of good conscience who agree with the substance of the Nashville statement, but there might be a whole variety of reasons why they did not sign. I know 
that the drafters of that statement were begging me to sign. I mean, I heard from them every hour on the hour. And I said, guys, guys, I'm just too busy. Um, I don't know if Carl and Amy got the same treatment. But um, anyway, Carl and Amy, the Nashville statement. Oh, and by the way, let's just tell them what it is real quick in case for some reason somebody doesn't know what we're talking about. The Nashville statement is a multi-point statement addressing issues like homosexuality, transgenderism, gay marriage, that sort of thing, and trying to kind of put a stake in the ground, if you like, of evangelical biblical beliefs and to try to encourage those in the face of the rising tide of sexual and gender chaos. Is that fair? I think so. I think it's certainly a very well-intentioned document. It's important to say right at the outset, it's been signed by as I look down the list of signatures, a number of people for whom I have huge respect and affection. Um, we see uh, our friend Rosaria Butterfield is a signatory. Vaughan Roberts, with whom I was at university some 30-odd years ago. He was president of the Christian Union, the equivalent of the InterVarsity Group at that time on campus. So Vaughan is a leading voice in British conservative evangelicalism. Sam Albury's there. And my Westminster colleague, Kent Hughes, have all signed the statement. So I think we're going to start by saying there's a lot of good people have signed this statement. And much that it affirms, I think, I would find myself in fundamental agreement with. The question for me on these things is always, what's such a statement hoping to achieve? Mm -hmm. And is it not problematic when such statements become a kind of litmus test? On the achievement side of things, I always think, if something is a petition, you've got to be petitioning somebody with formal authority or power to do something that they have the formal authority or power to do. And clearly, this isn't petitioning anybody. I think it's more of a statement that's expressing a group solidarity. It doesn't really contain enough substance for it to be a helpful document, for example, to give to congregants to help them think through the issues. It's very much, uh, it presents theses, statements that really rest upon an ocean of argumentation that I know exists behind the scenes for the signatories, Mm -hmm. but is not stated explicitly. The other side of it is the litmus test. And this is where I always find these things problematic. I've had numerous people contact me this week saying, why didn't you sign? Mm -hmm. And there is no dogmatic significance to the fact I didn't sign. If you want to know what my views on sexuality are, I take vows to the Westminster Standards, the Confession and the two Mm -hmm. catechisms. The larger catechism in particular is very clear on matters of human Mm -hmm. identity and sexual morality. Plus, you've written written stacks uh, of articles on the topic too. There's no mystery mystery where I stand on these things at all. I just don't sign statements by and large, because I never know if there's some political motive behind them. And I'm not saying there is in this case, but I never know that. I remember all the blood on the floor after the Manhattan Declaration. And frankly, I don't need that kind of grief in my life. And thirdly, yeah, I can't change the world. I'm happy to try to provide people with arguments through my writings on these issues, but where I can make an impact is releasing my local church and my presbytery and signing these grandiose national statements mm-hmm. doesn't really help me do that more effectively. Yeah. So I find it problematic when some people start to present non-signing of the Nashville statement as 
indicating that you're not on board or you don't have the courage to take a public stand. I'd want to say to the people who formulated it, who gives you the right to make agreeing with what you're doing at this moment in the way you're doing it, the test case of orthodoxy, you know, I think that's the problem for me with these sort of occasional non-ecclesiastical statements. Not that Mm -hmm. they can't fulfill a useful purpose. I just worry. We talked about this, Todd. I would draw a a comparison with, say, the open letter that Robert George and some Mm -hmm. Ivy League professors put out this week, which was signed by just a handful of invited signatories. It was not a petition. Mm -hmm. It makes some good points about students and thinking for themselves in conformity. No way it can be used as a litmus test because the signatories were closed. But Mm -hmm. we can all show that to our friends or read it to students or talk about it in a way that it isn't being used as a litmus test for deciding if I am inside or outside Robbie George's camp. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, the Nashville statement might have worked much better as an open letter signed by maybe 10, 12, Mm -hmm. 15 leading influential figures. Right. Right. Yeah. Good point. Well, I just wonder, you know, two big questions I asked too is is who is the audience, right? And what help is it going to offer them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really couldn't answer those questions well. Mm. I mean, is the audience evangelical churches or homosexuals mm-hmm. yeah. or just the outside world in general? And I and I think it was more evangelical churches, I guess. But I could see people getting a hold of a statement like this that doesn't have all the stuff. That is behind it. Like, if you're coming together for a statement on biblical inerrancy, mm-hmm. you're talking about a first order doctrinal issue, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, we talked a little bit on the podcast, Todd, you and I did about this whole sexuality thing and if, right. if it's a matter of orthodoxy. And mm-hmm. I think it's a matter of breaking first order mm-hmm. orthodox issues that lead right. you to this, you know, the wrong view right. of sexuality. So to take a statement like this and kind of hold it up as a first order issue without addressing all the actual ones mm-hmm. that have been broken, I mean, I just feel like we're talking between ourselves and maybe academia a little bit more than we are actually reaching people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I'm, I'm a lay person. I'm not an academic. My children are in public school. We deal with these issues. They mm-hmm. have friends who deal with these issues. Yep. And a statement like that would be so cold. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting contrast with the General Assembly report that the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America did maybe seven or eight years ago now on human sexuality. Now, obviously, I, I'm guessing if I went and reread that report today, it would be a little out of date because the whole transgender thing has really exploded mm-hmm. just in the last two or three years. But that was a much more useful document in some ways in that what it sought to do was apply the teaching of the Westminster Standards to the issue of homosexuality, gay identity. But it provided some solid argumentation and also some clear pastoral guidance Mm-hmm. So that's a, a remarkably useful, you can, you can buy it as a book, that's a remarkably useful document for addressing these issues that is, you know, well, it's helpful. Right. It, it's helpful. It's the kind right. of thing that a pastor or an elder or mm-hmm. a, a thoughtful Christian trying to wrestle with these issues mm-hmm. can use in a way right. that I think the Nashville Statement, maybe, maybe the Nashville Statement is an attempt to provide a rallying point. You know my theory on this, don't you? What's that? Which one? The real problem with American culture is this. Uh-huh. 
that you guys think petitions work. <laughs> the, the, the Declaration of Independence, you know, seditious and traitorous document as it was, did actually work, did actually work. And that left you thinking, this is how they do things. Actually, it's only worked once in the entire history of humanity. And that was the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, good. Oh, that's kind thanks, of funny. Thanks for that. Yeah. One of my one of my questions about the Nashville statement, and again, um, we have you know a long track record of being very clear about where we are on issues of sexual ethics and personhood and gender, and so that's not the problem. Yeah, I'm unsure about who the target audience is or who it's really intended for, because clearly it's not going to change anyone's mind. It's no. not going to that at all. And, and that's okay. That's okay. There are things that we say that we don't say necessarily for the purpose of changing someone's mind. So then if they understand that a homosexual is not going to read that and say, wow, I've been wrong about all of this. Yeah. But if the point then is to maybe just give encouragement to evangelical churches to not drift, well, that's legitimate because yeah. we know that churches and Christians have drifted on the issue. Well, and that's where I the, the ecumenical issue is. could have been framed a little bit better than... Well, to, and it is framed like that when you click on the donate button. Oh, okay. If you okay. click on donate... You donated? No, I just well, clicked just, on You just donate. clicked on the button. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to clarify that for this. <laughs> it takes you to Maybe the... Maybe Bird is CBMW donor. You heard <laughs> it here first. CBMW's <laughs> website, okay. the main sponsor... And then it's, they say that they intend to work from this statement to help provide resources for churches who would like more help in this area. And that's a concern of mine, actually, yeah. because I feel like it's, it's not a very ecumenical document. No. And so some of their views, I mean, I've obviously challenged before and I have some problems with. So, you know, I just I'm troubled by that. But when you're going to come together for an ecumenical document on sexuality, I, I wonder at the lack of female input. Yeah, I think they drew the circle too tight on who was actually involved and, and who could affirm some of these things. Again, I may affirm everything they're saying on there, but for a public statement mm -hmm. whose purpose, I'm guessing, is to receive broad buy-in. Right. should have been, it seems to me, composed by a broader group of people who actually do agree on biblical sexual ethics. And the use of the term ecumenical is interesting as well, because yeah. what you really mean when you talk about ecumenical is you're talking about churches right. doing these documents, whereas what we have is the usual group of free-floating self-appointed suspects at the top, if I could put it in a slightly negative, well, a rather negative way, but they're not representing a church body. They're representing themselves or a parachurch body. For a document to be truly ecumenical, really, it would be like the OPC, the PCA, the Southern Baptist, right. the RPCNA, the Orthodox Anglican branches getting together and producing a yeah. document or having a document produced with representatives, official mm -hmm. formal representative representatives yep. may not be possible. It seems to me it would have been worth the try. And that's where on this document where I wish some of our Presbyterian brothers who were a part of that could have helped our Baptist brothers who were a part of that understand the importance of a more ecclesiastical connection to yeah. it. Well, it has an um, appearance of that because the signatures mm -hmm. range more. Right. right. Yeah. And it, and it is a document, I think, 
Baptists, Presbyterians, Episcopalians can sign it with good conscience. Sure. I don't think these men are purging themselves at all. One other aspect that strikes me, and, and this, I need to speak very clearly about this because I could be badly misinterpreted. There is a strand in conservative evangelicalism at the moment that uses the language of celibate gay Christian. Mm-hmm. I have yes. a real problem with that because yes. I don't like the use of a sexual identity term being used in that foundational way. So I think that's a real problem. And I'm thinking of a guy like, for example, Wes Hill when I say that. And I have problems with some of the things that Wes Hill says. But I'm not convinced that now is the moment to throw those guys out of the tent. Do you call that a salvation issue? Well, I'm thinking, is it not possible that if we continue to talk with these guys – we might actually be able to persuade them of a better way. Right. That I'm not yet convinced that they've drifted so far that we should anathematize them. Right. If I put it in a rather patronizing way, my view is I think they're misguided. Yeah. And I would rather have them talking to us mm. than mm. going and talking yeah. to them, if I could put it that way. And I think that's a strategic question. That, and maybe the Nashville Statement people ask that question. That's a strategic question to ask. Is this the moment to set certain people outside the camp? Have we really tried all ways we can to see if we can persuade guys like Wes Hill of a better way? Mm-hmm. And is now the time to throw him out? Mm-hmm. Or, as I think, probably it's worth going the extra mile just yeah. for a little bit longer. Absolutely. I would agree. Yeah. Please, please hear what I'm, you know, listeners, I am emphatically not saying that <laughs> describing oneself as a gay Christian is legitimate. No, absolutely. I'm saying that the discussion about that term at this point needs to continue yes. to try to persuade those who use it that it is problematic. Right. Well, and so that's an upstairs argument, which I totally agree with. And I'm glad you say that. But if I could walk downstairs to regular you know, non-academic lay people and, you know, regular situations that my kids are now up against where they have a friend who has relationship with somebody who is transitioning. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so this argument about the pronouns, my children don't think that it's legitimate to call a boy transitioning to a girl, she, Mm -hmm. or a girl transitioning to a boy, he. But, you know, they're going to have a more mature thinking through of this as Christians. But if they're going to be able to have any kind of relational respect Mm -hmm. and witness Mm -hmm. to these people, they might have to use a little bit of that language sometimes. In communicating with them. That is is true. Because if not, they're drawing drawing a line in the sand that, no, I can't, I'm going to cut off any opportunity to talk to you Mm -hmm. and build any relationship with you that would bring you into my church. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These are hard real life questions, and I, I'm guessing Todd's face. I mean, as pastors, yep. Todd and yep. I'm sure I've already had this question several times. Absolutely, as a transgender person in the workplace, and I'm told to use the female name or the male name. What do I do? And yep. at this point in time, I'm unwilling to say to somebody, "This is the issue, and you need to lose your job over." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. I haven't yet thought it through, and I'm not willing to give advice that costs me nothing and costs them everything, right. if I could put it that way, right. because we do need to think through these things. And I need help. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time thinking about these issues. I still need help and wisdom mm-hmm. of others trying to think my way through what is a, a rapidly changing landscape all mm-hmm. the time where people like me and Todd, we are actually not the ones facing the toughest questions. So Al Mola is not on the front line. Right. 
No. It's guys. My and kids Elmo's. are. Yeah, it's your kids. It's <laughs> my right. kids. Yep. It's Cruella Deville's husband in the workplace. You know, <laughs> the people in the secular workplace, they're the ones facing the really right. tough questions. Right. Yeah, I mean, and, it's easy to make these 14 articles, yeah. but very cold. If, if, so if my kids' friends who are struggling with those things would read my name on that list of signatories, I mean, it would it would be very harmful to them, not because I believe that that's a sin, right? but because I've just... just it could unnecessarily alienate. Yeah. Maybe the wrong strategic move at this point. Right. Yeah. It, would, it could yeah. unnecessarily alienate you from people that you could otherwise have influence exactly. with. And that doesn't mean I have to be soft on what my beliefs are. Oh, of course not. But yeah, I have to not. care about them, mind, body, soul, right. everything. Yeah. And that's all about the strategic nature of the statement. Is the truth better served with a statement out there like that or through the ministry of local churches where we have relationships with people relationships yeah where we are proclaiming and communicating the same substance but doing it in a framework of relationship love care the preached word the taught word in small groups that kind of thing the church is still the best strategy mm. and so on something as sensitive and easily misrepresented right. <laughs> as that. You know, you have to ask the question, is that the best strategic move? Makes it kind of amusing that our friend Rod Dreher, of course, loves the statement yeah. and has been writing yeah. about it all week. Yeah, exactly. And yet he's Mr. Local. We need to do these things that are local. Right. right. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Again, I think Rod made the good point that at least the evangelicals, it's clear where they stand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? He's sort of yep. expressing some frustration with his own tradition, I think. Absolutely. There is a lot of prevarication and, and ambiguity. So, again, to return to a positive thing, I think we need to at least the statement means well on that level. Yep. That's a very patronizing way of putting it, but at least it means well. It's, sure. it's pointing in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. And, for instance, one of the frustrations I have with some of my fellows in the PCA is that when it comes to, for instance, you know, the racial white supremacist debacle that we had not far from me here in Charlottesville several weeks ago, it had some PCA pastors who are vague about everything sounding suddenly like hellfire and brimstone preachers. And my whole thing is, gosh, I would love for them to give at least a little bit of that same clarity when it comes to homosexuality. You know, we can't get them to say a word about that, though. So I appreciate the clarity. I appreciate the, hey, this is where mm -hmm. we stand. Mm -hmm. The question is, was this the best way to put it, and as a statement like this, the best strategy for the church? Because when it comes down to it, it's the church's responsibility. Yeah. So I think as we wrap up, we could perhaps summarize by saying, you know, there's not much in the statement we ourselves personally disagree with. The wisdom and strategy of the statement is something that I think we can debate. And I, I would also add that I bet 12 to 18 months down the line, the statement will be more or less forgotten. Mm -hmm. Because... This issue is not going away. Right. This statement is certainly not going to solve it. Mm -mm. There are going to be further developments in the sexual revolution that will require further thinking on the part of the church. And it behoves us all, I think, to become as well-read and thoughtfully engaged with this issue mm -hmm. as possible. And the Nashville statement, I think, forms part of the literature Mm -hmm. with which we should be familiar as we're engaging this issue for all of its shortcomings and for its problematic use as a litmus test. It's clearly now part of the ongoing discussion and debate both within evangelical Protestantism and within wider culture. 
as a whole. Well, thank you very much for joining on this podcast. It's been great to be fed easy questions by Todd and Amy, which have allowed me to show off my innate brilliance once again. I hope to solve all your problems for you. We hope that you will join us again next time. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org. And remember, we are a viewer-supported outfit. So if you would like to make a donation, do not do what Amy does at CBMW, and that's simply <laughs> click on the donation spot to see what we're up to. Click on the donation button and actually follow through with making a real hard, cold cash donation. <laughs> Thank you very much, and we'll see you all next time. <laughs> Well, are you tired of just listening to our voices, the smooth, dulcet sounds that come from our diaphragms out through our mouths? Well, I understand as good as our voices are, our faces are even better. And to allow you a good look at us and what it looks like when we record an episode of Mortification of Spin, we will be live streaming a recording session. And it's going to be on September 15th at 1.15 in the afternoon. And all you need to do to join us for that is to go to AllianceLive.org and sign up and you'll be able to join us in a more full and complete experience. You will get to see Amy's dining room or living room, one of the rooms in her house we will be uh, checking out. We might even do a full house tour to see what kind of homemaker she is. You will get to see firsthand whether or not Carl and I's receding hairlines are as bad and severe as they seem to be in certain still shots, and which one of us is retaining the hair on the top of his head more successfully. So all kinds of exciting opportunities. Carl may be fetching us coffee. There's a rumor. Carl will be getting us coffee. It will be instant. But we'd <laughs> love to have you join us for that. So that is coming up September 15th, 1.15 in the afternoon, and we hope that you'll join us for this live streaming event. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. Did you see the um, old school Presbyterian guys are giving us a hard time about playing Lola? Yeah. Yeah. What? Why? Uh, oh, What's wrong with Lola? Teasing. Oh, you see, gonna, okay. The message is Ray Davis chatted up a girl and found out she was a bloke and was really pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's the message. It was what we were talking about. The message is entirely congruent with the Nashville statement. Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> totally.